Today's scripture comes from John chapter 8, verses 31 and 32. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. I'm glad to worship with you this morning. We'll get the uh, mic levels happening just right, so give us a moment to do that. Let me move uh, some other things out of the way. I like to walk around when I talk, so the last thing I need is to trip over this thing here. Uh, We are um, in the little past the halfway point in our series, finishing up in in the last few weeks of June on a series of um, how to live out of the gospel when things are tough in your life, when things go wrong, when you face trials, when you face tribulations, when you face the difficult things that put pressure on you and pressure on your life and pressure on your inside and pressure on your mind, what is the go- where does the gospel meet you and what does it mean? Where does the gospel meet you and what does it mean? And so we've been looking at that and we've looked at Various, we've looked at Jesus, surprise. I, I just give away the, the punchline uh, right, right up front. We looked at Jesus. We've been looking at Jesus. We're going to continue to look at Jesus. But we looked at, for example, how Jesus is such an asset to us, such an asset to us that anything that we would count as uh, something, uh, anything that we would count as an asset for ourselves should be in a liability column in comparison. So he's our only asset. And then through that, that affects the way that we deal with the things around us, but also deal with God and deal with one another. And so we've looked at uh, various ways to unpack the gospel and look at the treasures in, in there. And, or if it were a wonderful meal, to, to eat, eat it a bit, to really savor the food of the gospel, the taste, be nourished by it. And so we're, we're looking today, we come to a point today where we're going to look at Something that Jesus says in John 8, 31 and 32, and it's an extraordinary place. Uh, You heard it read, but he said, I'll say it again. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. There are some words that I want to draw our attention to there that that are important as we move forward. Because the, the title of the sermon we, we talked about is Living to Please God. The reality is that we get in trouble under pressure and under circumstances because we live towards pleasing other things, pleasing ourselves, pleasing other people, because we're living to get the things that we think that we need. Now we're going to talk about those in a moment. What's interesting about Jesus' statement here is this sandwich between two intense reactions by the religious leaders of his day. Now, what's happening is there's the Feast of Tabernacles. It's a feast that's going on, and Jesus had already pointed, before this passage that we're reading here, he had already pointed to himself. He had looked at the religious ceremony that was going on, and he looked at the water that was involved with the ceremony. He said, you see the water here that represents God's presence and renewal in your life and the people of God and all of the promises he would feel? Fulfill, I'm that water. If you drink from me, you'll never thirst. Wait a minute. What's that mean? And then he, he would refer to the lampstand that was in the outer court of the temple where there's worship going on. And it's lit. And during this festival, it's lit. And it would recall all of the wonderful ways that God was present with his people. The pillar of fire. Fire is a very important um, representation of God. It's the way that God manifests himself uh, for God's people and it show his presence. And he'd say, you see this fire? I'm the light of the world. But it also implies that there's darkness. Now, 
on the one side of his, of his statement here, we have a religious pride. We have a, a sense that I'm, I'm part of God's people. I go and worship. I do the activities. The context for this verse is a, is a, is a religious ceremony that's going on for God's people. You understand? So there's a sense of pride that, yes, we're God's people, and they're identifying with Jesus because they were looking through the lens of being God's people, and they were taking that lens in and of itself and the effort that they would put into that, and they were looking at Jesus' claims and saying, oh, okay, you're saying you're the Messiah, the one we've longed for. You were the one who will lead us in the way that we do our religion, in the way that we tend to these things ourselves. And he says, well, wait a minute. I said that I was the light of the world, and that implies darkness. And here he says, if you abide in my truth, you're saying you believe. If you abide in my truth, it will set you free. And so freedom is one of the words I want to look at because the reality is, is if they're going to be set free, it means that they're prisoner. Prisoner to what? We're going to take some time and look at that, and hopefully in practical ways that we can take with us as we study the same passage in our home meetings as we finish up for the summer. So there, there's a need for freedom that Jesus talks about. There's also this idea of abide in. If you let my word abide in you. You see what he says? If you abide in my word, if you abide, what does, word, what does abide mean? What does it mean? You know, I studied it, and it's very interesting. I think the, the only way to understand the word abide is to think about a movie. You know, there are countless movies where you're watching along, you're watching along, you're watching along, and then there's a moment that changes the entire scope of the story, and you see the story in such a new way that you can't go back and watch that movie the same way twice. You just, because of that piece of information, everything changes. Very old reference, right, very old now, is the very first Matrix movie. You're watching along, watching along, things are going along for Neo, he's sort of like living life as a hacker, what's going on? And then he wakes up in a pod, and he's unplugged from this simulated reality that he's been living in, and the world is a very different place for him. Okay, now you can't watch that movie any further. <laughs> you know, now that you have that knowledge, you can't watch it in the same way twice. Or, I'm old enough to have... Um, have family members be part of wars. My grandfather was a part of World War II. And so it was customary for service people to come to the door of, a, uh, of a, uh, an officer that was downed or a soldier that was downed and report to the family that they lost their family. And in some cases, they would come and report that they're still alive, they're on their way home, right? And so imagine being a part of World War II and having your loved one away fighting for you, and you come to the door, and there are officers there to report and it could go, you don't know, you're assuming the worst that you've lost your loved one. You've lost your loved one. And you break down and you're crying. And they say, no, 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 don't misunderstand. We came to report that your loved one's coming home, that they're safe, they made it through, they're being discharged, and you're going to see them soon. That is news of life-changing monumental proportion, right? That's what the gospel means. And that's what Jesus is talking about here when he says... If you abide in my word, the word abide means the reality within which you dwell. The reality within which you dwell. So there's something about Jesus' word that brings a new reality for the people of God who are living, they're trying to please God, but he says that they're caught. They need to be freed from something. They need to be freed from something. And he talks about, he, he delivers this gospel 
this news about he himself. He points himself as the water, the living water. He points to himself as uh, the light of the world. He points himself as having self-authority. There's an entire argument around these surrounding passages about how do you, whose authority do you do this by? And, you know, Jesus invokes this old language where God calls himself, I am. And Jesus refers to himself in the same way. So he's, re- he's referring to himself as not only God, but he's referring to himself as the fullness of all of these religious longings. And that is news of a life-changing proportion. It's like the movie, or it's like the news that the World War II family would get that changes their life forever. They're alive. They're coming home. Jesus' news about himself being the fullness of religious longing is just like that. And he says, that's what you have to abide in. When I bring my word, it's a new realm of existence. It's a new realm of possibility. It's a new realm of what you need to know and be involved with. Okay, well, how does this work? How does this work? I, I think the easiest way, one of the help, most helpful ways to describe it has been the way Jonathan Edwards in one of his writings about telling the truth. Jonathan Edwards was a smart guy, very smart guy, one of a, by many estimates, one of the smartest philosophers and theologians this country has ever had. And so he, has, he wrote voluminously on practical religious experience. So what does the gospel mean? Let's figure it out. And so he thought about virtue, telling the truth. And he would say, why do you, why do you tell the truth? And he said, well, there's common reasons, and then there's a graceful reason. And he said the common reasons are always pride or fear. And we see those sandwiched on either side of our verse. Remember, pride that we're part of God's people involved with the religious ceremonies, doing things on our own. But wait a minute, Jesus says there's also something you need to be set free from. So there's a fear that can happen, right? I'm going to show you. So, for example, why do you tell the truth? Well, the religious version is I tell the truth because that's what good God-loving Bible-believing people do. And so I'm a good, God-loving, Bible-believing person, and I'm going to tell the truth. All right? So there's a sense of pride wrapped up in that. There's a secular version too, right? I'm like the kinds of people who work for the common good by telling the truth. I'm not like the miserable people who don't, right? The Christian would say, I'm not like the miserable non-Christians who who don't tell the truth. I'm like good God-abiding, Bible-believing Christians who do. So there's pride. He said, okay, there's a common reason for telling the truth. And he said, there's also fear. It's not just pride, but there's also fear. Why would you tell the truth? Because if I don't, God will judge me. Right? And the secular version would be, well, if I, if I don't tell the truth, then I'll contribute to the breakdown of society, and so I don't want to do that. He said... Okay, those are, common, those are common ways to tell the truth. Now he turns it around and he says, well, why would you lie? And this is interesting because Edwards in his thoughtfulness corners us. And he says, you're going you're gonna to find that you lie for the same reasons. You lie because you're afraid or you're proud, right? You lie, religious version of lying would be, well, I actually do a lot in the community, in the church, in my family, among my friends, at work. I do a lot. I live out of the Bible a lot. Who are you to judge me for this one thing? I don't have to reveal that to you. This is not your business. You're missing all of this wonderful stuff that I do. And so pride is a a motive for lying, right? And then he says, 
Well, what about fear as a motive for lying? What about fear? So, well, I, I, can't, I can't say the truth because I'll be found out. And then God will judge me, the religious version, right? Or the secular version, if, if I'm found out, the other people that I've been walking along with to work for the common good of society will see that I'm not working for the common good of society and they'll outcast me, so I can't tell the truth. Now, Edwards does judo on our own hearts because he says, look for a moment, look for a moment. If you use the same roots within yourself to tell the truth as you do to lie, you're nurturing the roots of sin within your moral life. Do you get that? If you use the same standards, the same roots, the same motivations to tell the truth as you do to lie, you're nurturing the roots of sin within your moral life. So all of your good doings, all of the things you would call good, all of the things that people would look at you as doing good, they're being nurtured by the same roots underneath that sin is nurtured with. And we misunderstand sin, which is why we have such trouble abiding in the truth of Jesus' word. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will what? Set you free. Edward's point about these kinds of things is that we're bound. We are not free. We're prisoner of trying to get an identity from either pride or fear. But then he comes in and he reminds us, as Jesus does here, of what true virtue is. True virtue first starts with the fact that there is no pride. The Son of God, the one who claims himself to be the sole authority for his own word, God himself in the flesh, had to come and had to die for you because you're in darkness, because there is no truth in you. At the end of this passage, Jesus is about to be stoned because he compared the religious livers out of, their, out of the roots of sin within their moral life, being nurtured and living in that way, he compared them as uh, children of Satan. He called them children of Satan when they were calling themselves children of Abraham. Why? Because they wanted to kill him. And Satan's a murderer. And they didn't believe his word. And they distracted people from it. And Satan's a liar. His name means both things. So you've got, you've got the fact that you're so, you're worse off than you ever dared think. You're worse off than you dared contemplate. There are fractures. Uh, there's the reason the Son of God needed to die because you, he had to die for you. There's no room for pride. There's an there's a incredible story that a pastor once told me of a, uh, a family who lost children in a car accident, and um, it was a terrible thing. And it was a small town, and the people came around, and because it was a small town, the press came around, and they asked the family, and they were on the, on the lawn of the church, and the church surrounded the family, and this, this man and this woman were there. And they were praying and singing with their church members, and they were going through, um, going through just an awful, awful time. And the press came, and they were kind of astounded that they weren't more undone by what was going on. And so they interviewed them. And the husband said, you know, I don't know why God has done this. I don't have privy. I'm not privy to his will. I don't understand why. But one of the things that we believe is that he's good all the time. 
And I just can't see how he'll work this for goodness. He works all things for the good of those who love him. I can't see that right now. But we know that we can't do it alone. We've got to be in community. We've got to be, have the shoulders of our church family to lean on and our regular family. And, you know, the world was astounded because here is the most crushing grief you can know. And here they are living up in a way that the world can't. One of the things that the press didn't see was a couple of years later, the guy came to the pastor. And the guy came to the pastor and said, I want to talk to you, pastor. And the pastor said, sure, let's, let's talk about it. Well, I'm concerned. Why? Because I'm at work and I notice this woman who's not my wife and I can't stop thinking about her. Pastor said, have you done anything? No. Have you, does she know? No. Have you, what's, nothing. I, I'm coming to you. I want to know, I, I want to know why that's there. I, I don't, I don't like that it's there. This is a fracture in me that I don't want to see. And so the pastor tried to talk about the gospel as sinfulness not being what you do, but in yourself, that you are sinful. You're not sinful because you sin. You're sinful because you're a sinner. And the reason that you need Jesus is because you're a sinner. You are so broken. You are so unable, unable to have righteousness just flow up from yourself that you need God to stand in your place and take the judgment that you would have taken. And he didn't get that. And he got worse. And he got more depressed. And despite the pastor's best efforts to help him to abide in Jesus' word, he couldn't. And the fracture within himself ended up, he ended up taking his own life because he couldn't stand to look at the fracture of brokenness within his moral life. What had happened? He was nurturing the roots of sin within his moral life and he had never seen it. Friends, you have to see it. It's so possible to counterfeit grace in your life that you can miss it altogether. Don't you remember Jesus saying on the last day? You know, people are saying, when do we see you, Jesus? When do you see us? Well, you know, he says, you, when you, you know, he talks about drinking, giving a drink of water to someone thirsty. He talks about those kinds of things. And they say, we've done all these things. We have all these gifts. We've lived religiously. We've nurtured the roots of sin within our moral life is what actually happened. And he says on the last day, away from me, I never knew you. It's very possible to counterfeit this. And what I'm trying to show you is that there's no room for pride in the gospel. You need Jesus. You need him desperately. I need him desperately. And the more that you begin to see the fractures and the fissures in your own life and to begin to see that you sin not because you do things wrong, although that is sinful, you sin because inside your predisposition is against God to run away from him, to rebel against his authority, to reject who he is, to live for yourself instead of who he is and what he brings to you. So the gospel does away with pride. Back to Edward's story and unpacking of that. But the gospel does away with fear too. You know, one of the things that happens in the, in the part right after our passage here is that the people of God couldn't look at the fractures within themselves. They end up being really angry at Jesus. They end up trying to stone him, kill him, right? The reality is, though, there are people that you'll see who model actually coming face-to-face with the fissures in their own life spiritually. 
Like the man who stands outside of the temple and beats his breast and looks with his head face towards the ground and says, be merciful to me, a sinner. And he's not even willing to go in. That attitude is a predisposition that you need to be able to live and abide in the word of Christ. You not need to just do, do away with fear or pride, but you need to do away with fear. Um, the reality is, is that Jesus came to take your place. He did it on the cross. God can judge you right now for everything you've done and everything you will do. If you are in yourself, God can judge you. He can condemn you. He has the authority and the power and the right, and he would be right and good to do so. Did you know that? He's so distinctly holy is one of the part of the gospel. He's so distinctly holy that he had to judge sin. And so if you've grown up in the church, you're familiar with the cross, that he went to the cross and he took your sin and he atoned for you and they paid me. But that's only half the gospel. Did you know that? If you come down to the foot of the cross and you know that your sins are atoned for and you do not let that drive you right up into God's presence with the freedom of a child of God where you know your adoption as a son or a daughter, you know that you have all the rights of the family in the kingdom, you know, you know that you have a right at the table, you know that you have a right to judge angels and men with him, you know that you are made a part of the kingdom through his effort, not your own. Unless you taste the spirit testifying with your spirit that you're his child, unless you let your sinfulness, which you need to come to, take away fear. Remember Jesus said perfect love casts out fear. This is what he means. It means that his atoning work on the cross for your sin pushes you up into the presence of God so that you have the freedom to live in relationship with God in a new way. And that's what Edward says true virtue is. What is telling the truth related to God in this new way, abiding in Jesus' word? It's freedom. It's freedom from the power of pride. There's nothing in you that can recommend yourself to God. So stop. Lay your deadly doing down. Down at Jesus' feet and rest in him and him alone, gloriously complete. But he does love you. He did die for you. It not only does away with pride, it does away with fear. He does love you. He stood in. He took all of the penalty, all of the sacrifice, and not only that, he overwhelmed the power of sin and death on your behalf. He rose again from the dead, and he sent his spirit to dwell in you so that you can have a different relationship to even the thing of telling the truth. Why do you tell the truth in freedom now? Because it represents your beloved's character. You're participating in who he is. You get to show the world who he is when you tell the truth. It's not because there's any moral checklist that rests on your shoulders. It's now in Jesus you are free to tell the truth and to be like him. You are free. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word and you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth, the truth will set you free. I'm going to remind you, and I'm going to, I think I'm just going to keep in the habit of reminding you, because as I talk with more and more of you, I see that you and I both forget this all the time. Why do we need set free? Why do we need to abide? Why do we need to arrange our lives so that we're abiding in the truth of God's word, Jesus' word to us? This new realm of his word that's different than the old realm? 
We, if we remain in that, if we abide in that, then things are different for us. Why do we need reminding? Because honestly, in and of ourselves, we keep forgetting because sin is still so present in our life and touches everything that we do. We will forget. We need each other. Why do you think we need to study this together? Because there are things that we'll have to remind each other of that we can see, that, we, that others can see in our lives that we won't be able to see ourselves. We need one another, and we need God working in us. And that's how he chooses to do it. He chooses to work through you and your counsel to me. And he chooses to work through me and my counsel to you. And we together walk in community as the people of God, as the church of God. You know, one of the things that is, is interesting as we've talked this past year and gotten to know one another is that there's a, there's a prevalent view among, among many of you. Prevalent view is this. You ready? The Liberty Fairmount is a church, an organization that I come to from which I get something that I want. This truth that Jesus preaches to us says that you and you and you and you, if you come to God through what Jesus has done and not in your own strength, you are the church. That's why Peter calls you living stones. We're just an embodiment. Liberty Fairmont's just an embodiment of the worldwide church where people of all nations of every place, have Jesus, the Lord, dwelling in them and making them new and, and giving them the, the changed nature and changed reality that they can relate to, telling the truth and doing the things of God in a new way. We're just a local expression of something much bigger, but you have to realize that it is not a building. What do we call this building now, Elizabeth? <laughs> we don't know. The Gerard building? I don't know. Brian's still on in the front. It's not a building. It's not an organization. It's not a program. It's you, You are the church. You are the living stones. You are the person that this truth has to abide in. You have to abide in Jesus' word as his church. There are going to be moments when you fail at that. And you're never going to be able to do this by trying very hard. I'm going to say that again and again until we we have some commerce with it day to day, until we know it. You are not going to be able to abide in the truth of Jesus' word by trying really hard. And in fact, the reason why you don't abide in it by trying really hard is that you actually forget. You forget that he is your word. He is your light. He is your life. He is your living water. He is the one who represents you. He stands in your place. You cannot do it. You may not have pride in the gospel. It gives you no right. Have you met judgmental Christians? Are you guilty of judgmental, being judgmental yourself? You have no right because there's no basis for pride. You need Jesus just as much as anybody on the planet does. Period. The Son of God had to die for you, for you to have religious life. Do you hear that? It does away with pride. But please let the knowledge of your sin carry you up into his presence because he has done away with sin and death on your behalf. He has died for you. He has taken the penalty for your sin. But more than that, he gives you life, that you might have life abundantly. You might live it abundantly. Paul says he's not giving you a spirit of fear or timidity, but a power. The power of what? The power of Jesus' word. That is the new realm in which you abide, that he is the author and perfecter of our salvation, that he is our life, our light, and our peace. One of the practical examples that I was thinking about when we try to think through these kinds of things together is just how we live for common things 
rather than Jesus as the thing itself, right? So we'll tend to live for control. The fellow in that story who ended up taking his own life lived for control. He could order his life in such a way that he was checking off the checklist. And as long as he had control, everything was fine. And what happened? Along came a thought like a splinter in his mind and it undid him. How did a little thought that he never even acted on, that he never even broke out into, destroy him like that? Because his control, not his relationship with Jesus, was threatened. He looked towards control as the thing he thought he needed. And whenever anything threatened that, he would feel undone. And he did. Rather than looking at Jesus as the one who has ordered all things on his behalf, and continues to actively work in that, rather seeing Jesus as his control. Jesus is, is the fulfillment of the things he's longing for in control. He was looking to control itself. You remember, Paul says in Romans that we exchange the creator for created things. That's one example. What about power? Power is another example. What comes along, you know, like you, you, what comes along in your life that takes away from you the power to react? Have you had or any has, ever had something so powerful that, that it does that, that you don't have the power to stop it? Anne-Marie and I have been through the loss of uh, several loved ones. As you get older, you go through sort of end-of-life stages where the older generations die off and parents die off and grandparents die off and, and various people die off. I don't have the power to stop that. Do you? And that, you know, there are ways that we live for power uh, being able to express our desires and see them come to fruition all the time, whether it's at work, whether it's at people, whether it's relationship, whether it's with somebody likes me or not, or whatever it is, we want power. And when we're frustrated, all manner of badness comes out. You see it. If you long for power and you're frustrated and you're blocked from having it, and you feel fruitless in that. I remember I was training in Kung Fu one time with... Um, this four-foot-two woman who uh, was an immense practitioner of kung fu, and we would practice these sensitivity exercises and, and work together, and I would inevitably find her foot in my chest knocking me back, you know, several feet. And um, she had worked really hard because of her size and stature through skill to, to maintain her power. And so she said to the instructor one day, and I was her partner, she said, what, um, what happens when power is taken away? And he said, well, let's try. She said, what do you, he said, what do you fear the most? Well, I fear somebody just coming up and picking me and taking me away, and there's nothing I can do. I'm, I, can't, I can't fight against it. And so the exercise was I had to do a fireman's care. I just scooped her up and put her over my shoulder, and she clung on to me with dear life because she felt utterly out of control. She felt like she had no power in this situation, and she didn't know how she could fight against it. That's what happens in our lives when power takes the place of us looking to Jesus as our power and our authority and our hope. When the thing itself becomes the thing that we long for rather than the one in whom power is found. Right? It's the same thing with approval. When you long for other people to like you and want to think fondly of you and you want their approval and you're living for that and then something comes along and blocks you from having that, you're not abiding in the word of Jesus. It's not the realm of his word anymore. The same thing with comfort. Do you want the things in your life that are comfortable? 
when things come along and disturb your comfort? Does anxiety come out? Does frustration come out? Does anger come out? Do you hear those things? They're opposite of the fruit of the Spirit, by the way, the things we're supposed to be bearing fruit in because we're rooted down into what? Jesus is our true comfort. If you go to comfort in and of itself, the created things, to bring you the comfort you think you need, it will undo you. If Jesus himself is not your comfort, it will undo you. John Newton has an amazing little line where he says, Though we hourly have cause for our shame and our humiliation in going towards our sin instead of going towards him, yet in Jesus we have a balm for all our wounds, we have a cure for all our diseases, we have hope for all of our despair. He is our righteousness. He is our joy. He is our peace. Not the things he created. Those are good things. A good use of power, a good use of control looks like stewardship. The same with comfort and approval. It's good to have right relationship with one another where you're encouraging one another and loving one another. But it's when you take those things and live for them rather than knowing those things through Jesus for you. You won't be able to face the trials and the joy. You won't be able to have the joy that you need to survive the trials that you'll face if you don't abide in Jesus' word. This new realm of his word that you are neither righteous enough or you're neither unrighteous enough that his cross and his resurrection can affect you where you're at. He's come to change you. He's come to make you like him. He's promised to complete the work that he's begun. Are you having commerce with that? Please do. It's wonderful and joyous, and it's the only hope that you and I have. Paul says, if Christ is not raised, our faith is in vain. I believe that. And the good news is that he is raised. So let's raise our prayers to him now as we seek him out for the rest of our lives and the rest of this week. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, Son and Holy Spirit, three persons, one God, now, forever, and always. You are our light, Lord Jesus. You are our life. You are our peace. You are the example that we are to follow, but you are also the one who stood in. You are a representative. You are the one who lived your life in a way that we could not, in the way that the people of God could not. Because of our brokenness, because of our neediness, we cannot do it. And there's no room for pride. You had to die for us. But because you loved us, you did die for us. And you've taken away any reason for fear. And so what does walking forward, abiding in your word look like? It looks like freedom. It looks like freedom. Being set free by the truth of freedom that you give us to enter into your presence to be made like you, to daily see progress being made over our sinfulness, over the patterns in our lives, being able to yield ourselves more and more to your love and your shaping, being able to discern more and more your word instead of the other kinds of words in life, in the world, in our own hearts that try to shape us and misshape us and deform us. You are about remaking us completely from the inside out. We long for you, Lord. We cannot do it without you. So we rest in you for our, an answer to our pride, an answer to our fear. 
and a remedy that brings freedom. Be with us as we move forward in life together. In Jesus' name we pray.